Last week, I was catching up with a good friend. And as our conversation went, came to a close, she said, Kate, make it a good day. I was caught off guard, but I quickly responded with a word of thanks. And as I hung up, I started thinking about what makes a day good for me. Time with friends and family and my church people always lifts my spirits. And time outside is always invigorating too. And as I was thinking, the slow, steady breaths of my dog scout drew my attention to this sweet pup curled up next to me. Now, Scout likes to curl up and take naps throughout the day, following me wherever I am. She'll curl up next to me on the couch. She'll find herself by my feet when I'm at the dining room table. And she'll also find stretches of sunlight that filter in through the windows in bright afternoons. Scout is a dog who loves frequent peaceful naps. But it's not hard to tell that she is happiest when we are outside together. You can easily recognize her smile and her bright eyes when we are together on walks in the park or when she is fetching the tennis ball in the backyard, chasing after a squirrel or sniffing bushes and trees for the leftovers of previous dog walkers. Scout is a dog who loves to be outside and take naps, and that's what makes a good day for her. Ah, the easy life of a dog. Now, I expect for many of you, a good day includes more than naps and outside walks. During this time when so much has changed and so much is being decided, it may be more challenging to determine what makes a day good. Last week, Ellick reminded us that it is more difficult to mark our days during this liminal season. But I hope you will join me in considering the question, what does a good day look like? I imagine we all have somewhat different versions of what creates a good day as we find new rhythms to sustain us. And we can still focus on the good in our lives, even through the challenges and the grief, even though our world is so different now than it was this time last year. We find the description of a different world in Revelation. John paints the vision he has of what God's judgment looks like, of what it's like to live when God's reign rules, and people of every nation, speaking every language, all come together in reverence to glorify the one who created the earth. Now, today's text is one small snippet of the full picture. It is one snapshot of the multitude of often violent visions 
that John imagined would someday become a reality. According to John's prophecy, God's judgment arrives woven with wrath, death, and destruction. It's the kind of story that will keep you up at night if you read several chapters. I have to tell you, you won't find any vacation Bible school curriculum based on Revelation anytime soon. This is the type of apocalyptic scripture that is scarier than all the seasons of Stranger Things combined. Truly, the Upside Down is a child's playground compared to the hell or Hades that John describes. And the Demogorgon has nothing on the devil or death in Revelation. John writes to seven churches in Asia, warning them of the danger of losing their sight of their faithfulness to God while acclimating to the Roman culture around them. But it's not all fire and brimstone. John also includes the glorious ending that describes the new heaven and the new earth and offers good news. And then there is hope for the faithful woven throughout the warnings of what the future holds. Now, today's text offers a glimpse of that hope and a vision of unity and glory. Listen now as I read from the seventh chapter of Revelation, starting with the ninth verse. After this, I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white, with palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, singing, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, robed in white, and where have they come from? I said to him, Sir, you are the one that knows. And then he said to me, These are they who have come out of the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason... They are before the throne of God and worship him day and night within his temple. And the one who is seated on the throne will shelter them. They will hunger no more and thirst no more. The sun will not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, during this season of pandemics and political division, 
isn't this a dream we all want? John's visions of crowds of people coming together to worship God is full of celebration and joy. This vision holds another layer of promise for us in the future, when everyone can safely stand near each other, singing boldly, without fear or worry. Friends, don't we miss gathering here and worshiping and singing together? Don't we hope for the day when we can gather together for worship and fellowship again? But in John's vision, there are no limits or restrictions in this dream. All the people of God are seen clearly, coming from every nation, speaking all languages of the world, declaring that salvation belongs to God who reigns. The multitude grows to include so many, counting is rendered useless, echoing God's promises to Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars of heaven and the grains of sand on the seashore. All the faithful from all around the world join their voices to sing praises to God and to the Lamb. It is a hopeful vision of unity. And today it is a radical image where people of every age speaking every language come together. It's like the Olympics opening ceremonies of faith where everyone of all abilities, all colors, and all kin are in one place to sing and praise. Now when it comes to Revelation, our own Brian Blunt is an expert. Brian wrote an epic commentary on the book, and he notes that the dazzling white clothing indicates that they have been faithful witnesses. The members of the multitude earn their dazzling robes through their non-accommodating, conquering witness. Brian points out that the palm branches in their hands are intended to be a symbol of adulation, just as the crowds used palms in the Gospel of John when they greeted Jesus as he entered Jerusalem. This vast crowd of the faithful sing their gratitude to God, who created them with love, and to the Lamb, who redeemed them with grace and peace. They join the heavenly angels in singing their praise and worshiping God in the posture of praise and reverence. Now, apparently, this vision is confusing so John includes a conversation with one of the elders, emphasizing just who is present. The witness and faithfulness of the members are lauded again, for they have withstood the great trial as envisioned by John. They have remained faithful no matter what. As a result of their witness, God will dwell with God's people forever. Their worship will never cease and their union with God will never end. No longer will they know hunger or thirst. No longer will the sun slow them down. This good news is emphasized in the final verse of today's text. God 
will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Can you imagine a day without sorrow or grief? Don't we all hope for a time when the earth and all people will flourish together? This church has made a commitment to work towards such a vision. As an earth care congregation, we are paying attention to the ways our habits can heal and preserve creation. And as a Matthew 25 congregation, we are envisioning and examining our role in systems that perpetuate poverty and racism and discerning ways that we can advocate for God's dearly beloved. Friends, John's dream makes this leap to what is possible through God with Christ as our shepherd. And after the death and destruction have ended, John envisions the grandeur of a good day, a never-ending good day with God. The joys of being a saint of the Lord are everlasting worship, shelter with the Creator, sustenance from the Lamb, and the end of all grief and pain. John envisions a good day to be one of the faithful. Now perhaps you are familiar with Dr. Atul Gawande. Dr. Gawande practices general and endocrine surgery at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. He's also a professor at Harvard's School of Public Health and their School of Medicine. He's written a number of books and articles about the importance of time. And Dr. Gawande was interviewed by Krista Tippett for her show and podcast, On Being, about his book, Being Mortal, and what he has learned about the practice of medicine and the pursuit of health, of health and hope in the end of life. Gawande writes, we've been wrong about what our job is in medicine. We think our job is to ensure health and survival, but really it is larger than that. It is to enable well-being, and well-being is about the reasons one wishes to be alive. Dr. Gawande crafted five questions to ask toward the end of life, and the fifth one is, what does a good day look like? Dr. Guande shared the difference asking such a question can make in the final days. He shared one poignant personal story. I wrote about Peggy Batchelor, who was my daughter's piano teacher when she was 13. Peggy had a metastatic cancer and was laid up in the hospital for weeks on end. She just was miserable and angry and ultimately went home on hospice. And then the hospice nurse had that conversation. What does a good day look like? And then let's have a goal, just one good day. So at first they worked on that. And at the beginning, the goal was to get Peggy in a bed on the first floor so she didn't have to climb the stairs. And then they arranged for her to get dressed and bathed. And after two or three days of that, Peggy lifted her sights. 
then she wanted to teach piano again. And the idea that that was possible, it was extraordinary. And my daughter had the most extraordinary piano lessons. And then there was a recital, and at the recital they played Brahms and Chopin and Beethoven, and it reshaped my daughter's life. And that was the legacy Peggy wanted to leave. That idea of what is possible, that idea of what is good and beautiful and true, that idea of what makes a good day, whether it's teaching children how to play the piano or tinkering in the garden, taking a walk outside, enjoying a nap, or dancing and splashing in puddles. That's how John's apocalyptic vision for the battle between God and evil reminds us that when God reigns, we all have a good day. When God is fully in control, every tear will be wiped away from our eyes by our compassionate creator, and we will find ourselves as one voice in the heavenly chorus. So, dearly beloved, you saints of the Lord, you who are living through the great ordeal, you who worship a loving God day and night, you who will hunger and thirst no more, you who will be guided by the Good Shepherd to springs of the waters of life, beloved people of God, you faithful ones of Second Presbyterian Church, make today a good day and do your best that tomorrow may be a good day for you as well. Friends, join me in prayer. God of wonder and mystery, we look forward to the day when you will wipe away every tear and hunger and thirst will be no more. We hold on to your promise of all that will experience peace and joy. And in your world, there will be enough for all the living to live abundantly. Help us hold on to this vision and guide us to have the courage and compassion to make it a reality, even here, even now. We ask this in the name of the Good Shepherd who leads us to you. Amen.